Today, let's talk about what prevents people from just evaporating. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Now, we've, we've done previous episodes uh, about how important other people are, are to us, and, and specifically one that I have in mind I'll mention in a little bit. But I have brought up to you before in that context of how important other people are, how, you know, when we're children, because we're so dependent on other people, uh, we often imagine, and when I say often, I just mean I did this. Uh, but I know other people do because I've had conversations with them and they've affirmed that they did the same thing. We have this imagination that says, oh, when I grow up, I won't need anyone. I can do whatever I want. We imagine adulthood as total freedom, liberty from everyone else and and so on. No more response. I don't have to clean my room anymore, you know, and so on. I mean, I have to build the room and pay for it and everything else, but no, I don't have to. So you get the idea. And, and we all learn that, that adulthood is anything but total freedom. Uh, in terms of the economy, we end up having to pay for everything. When we used to just show up for parties and everybody would take care of us, we have to prepare the party. We have to do the decorations. Even we've talked about how we compete for space, for crying out loud, everything. Uh, and it's more than just shared space that we have to learn to deal with in terms of how we negotiate our lives with other people. It comes down to values very often as well. We have to decide which things are most important. Hey, we're, we're both in the same boat. Are we going to go to that rock or that rock? Which, which direction are we trying to row here? And try, you know, doing that can be extremely in, inconvenient and disconcerting at times because you realize everyone's going a different direction than you are. And in light of that, we just want to throw everybody else out of the boat sometimes. We just don't want the restraints on us that life brings to us. And so I, I, I find it important for us to remember a concept that's so, so I don't want to use the word rudimentary because I think that sounds insulting, right? Uh, but it is so basic that we know it. We, we have to know it. We, we can't live without knowing it. And yet so offensive that we sort of choose to ignore it or bury it so that we don't have to think about it. And so I I want to bring up the issue of community again uh, today for us to talk about it. And part of that is just to understand why it's so important to talk about community in general. And part of the reason for that is because when we're living together, we do have to agree on rules and values. And you can say, no, we don't. We all have our own independent liberty and we can choose the... No, see, even that is already accepting a core value, liberty, as central to our being. And so saying, I I believe we ought to live in a free society where individuals can make their own choices is an indication 
of a set of values that we've adopted as a society. And so when we're living together, we have to agree on rules and values. And that includes the rules and values include, and this one's particularly important in our type of society, but it's true everywhere. This, I mean, you can't live without having to deal with this. The line between liberty and authority, that is between the individual's values and the community's values being played out as the things that belong to the individual or the community. So, you know, and I'll get the example that we've talked about here before, and we did a series of shows called Disagreeing to Agree that you can look up and see as well that talk about this in detail. This is not my point today. I just want you to get why I'm bringing it up, though, that on one side of this example of where we're choosing between individual values and community values being enforced on the society, you can't tell me what to do. That's imposing the individual's liberty on society. You can't do that. That's imposing the community's value on society. That's what I mean by that. So as an example, on one side, we say, you know, one group in our society says, well, the individual decides their own sexuality and nobody else should be involved in that. But the community decides where your economic value should lie, where what you should prioritize in terms of how you spend your money or what happens with the money that you produce because you're a laborer or you work in the society in some way. So the individual determines sexuality, but the community determines how the economy runs. On the other side of our society, and this is this is a true example, on the other side of our society are people who declare that the individual needs to be able to determine their own economic interest. If I don't want health insurance, I shouldn't have to pay for health insurance, and then I should live with the consequences. That's what some people say. And then they say, but the community should decide about sexual values. The community gets to decide who can get married and who can't get married and so on like that. Now, I'm pointing those two out not to pick a side right now. I live on one side of that question. Others live on the other side of that question. But the point is that part of us figuring out how we live together is figuring out which part of our values are to be expressed individualistically and which part are to be expressed in that community sense. Again, we already did a show, a series of shows on that topic, so you can go back and listen to that on your own. My point is that community is that important to resolving some of the most contentious problems in our culture right now, and it's important beyond just the political side and the public policy side and the fact that we happen to live together side. It's important intrinsically. It's important naturally, not because we've decided it's important. Whether we want it or not, whether we normally even admit that it's important or not, it's fundamental, fundamental to who we are. And in this case, I don't just mean society, I mean culture. And those are two different things. We, we talked about society more than anything else before. But today, I'm, I'm leaning toward culture in the conversation. And, you know, I, could, I can put the difference this way, that society is something like the interpersonal and public space within which people live together, right? So interpersonal, you know, you're having to deal with all those other people that you bump into out there, and whether you know them or not, or whether they speak your language or not, you're having to deal with them, and you're having to share space, and you're having to share economic means and stuff like that. Okay. So that's society. We're just socially put together. But then the culture has this intellectual, ethical, aesthetic, and religious product to it, right? So as the society produces 
uh, academics, as it produces literature, as it produces values, as it lives out art and shows beauty in this way and that way, and as architecture takes on this form and that form, and as religion takes on a certain style or even exact content in the faith, it is an expression of culture. It's an expression of that society that we would then call culture. So it's the artifact of society, so to speak, of humans living together. Okay, so the thing is, if we grasp how important community is in all of those things, and by this I mean in community culture is in all of these things, we're in a better place to work through a lot of the problems or the issues that divide us if we don't recognize it. And, and even if we do recognize it, the issues are still there and they still divide us, but we're in a better place to work through those issues or those problems when we're not simply looking at them as the issues and opinions of a bunch of individuals, but as groups within the society. Uh, and and in, in reality, a lot of those problems are problems we will never comprehend only as individuals. Uh, an individual might be able to bypass something, but as a society or as a community, and particularly as a culture, we can't just bypass it. So what I'm talking about, therefore, is the importance of community. In one sense, we define that importance because it defines who we are. That is, the community or the culture defines who we are. And I'm literally, I mean, you know, I teach courses in humanities and philosophy, and in those, in that world, part of what you have to deal with, one of the basic philosophical questions, if you have any decent introduction to philosophy uh, textbook, it's going to deal with this question of the self. What is it that makes a self what it is? How do you identify what, a, you know, what a human being, but I don't mean that organically or biologically, you know, us, the thing that's a soul, the thing we identify as a human being, a self. What makes it what it is? It's not as easy to answer as you think, and if you try to tell other people what you are, any answer you give, and I've done this for decades and asked people this question for ages, and it's inherently the case. It's, it's not a happenstance, and it's not evil. It's just part of who we are. I mean, this is part of the point I'm making today. But any answer you give, I can say, well, that's not really who you are. That's just where you live or how you grew up or what you do or something like that. So, for instance, uh, you know, so what kind of person are you or who are you or how, you, how do you identify yourself? You can give your name, but that's nothing. I mean, that's just a name. So Fred, Ollie, whatever you want to call yourself. That's no good. Okay, that's, that's just what you have people call you. But, I mean, who are they calling to? Oh, well, an American. Well, that's where you live. That's the political world you grew up in. That's the, the, the set of laws, the society that you're a part of, whether you want to think of it as a state or as a nation or whatever. So there's nationality, and we do this all the time. I'm an American. I'm a Baptist. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a preacher. I'm, a pre I'm the president of a college. Uh, I'm a white man. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an African-American. You know, all we're doing is identifying groups that we belong to. That's how you identify yourself. And even if it's not a group, the thing that you're choosing to identify yourself as still places you within the group. So, for instance, I'm a rhetorician. Okay, well, you use your words to influence other people, and that's how they identify who you are, right? So any of those categories you choose are categories that you begin to identify as uh, yourself because 
you belong in a certain place that's defined by the community around you, society on one hand, but mostly culture, that is the artifacts of society on the other hand. So when you define yourself by your race or your economic status or your marital status, all of those, I mean, race, you're part of the group. Economic status, well, you're in that class of people who have this much money and live this way, and you're a wage laborer, or no, you're upper middle class, or you live in those who have capital, and so on. Or marital status, you're one, you're, you're not just single if you're single, you're not just married if you're married, you show up at most churches and you're assigned to a class of other singles because you're single, or marrieds if you're married. And if you go to a place that's not insensitive to that uh, common practice, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to say it's inherently bad, I'm just saying there are some cases where that's not the best way to do it. Even if you go to one of those, you're going to be classified in a different way. Ooh, I think you would fit in that class. Just follow me and I'll take you down the hall. That's the point that you identify with some other people. It's not bad. It's just the way we are as human beings. There's no way for us to take one step after the next without dealing with where we fit in with other people. Age group, you know, are you a teenager? Are you 20-something? And not even just that, but think about the way we define generations or categories of age groups. Well, are you Gen X? I can't tell. Are you millennial? What? Are you Gen Z? Are, well, what's going on here? Oh, he's a boomer. That's it. Okay, boomer. So you get all that language is just putting us in groups, even things that seem personal. Wait, I, I don't define myself by the group because I'm tall. Come on. Seriously? This one's easy. You know, when I went to India, love India. Loved being there, loved visiting there, loved coming back. Uh, all of it's good. I, I do. I, I did love all of it. Here's the thing. I went a couple of times, and when I went, and I'm not, look, I'm, I, I'm not disparaging. I'm not comparing value. I'm simply saying this is the reality of it. I came back. I didn't even realize this. My coworkers know I am the worst person in the world at noticing other people's height. I just don't. Uh, I don't recognize that somebody is shorter than I am or taller than I am unless I'm actually walking up to them and have to crane my neck up. I notice if people are noticeably taller than I am if I'm right next to them. But aside from that, I just kind of ignore it. You know, you're just in the room with another person. So I was that way in India. I'm just doing around. There are great people over there, some great, great Christian leaders that I got to deal with. It was just fantastic. I came back and started showing pictures to people, and it's like, what happened? Look at these pictures. I look like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar next to the people I'm standing next to. I had no idea. I'm not a tall person. I'm 5'11", and on my way down, by the way, admittedly. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm approaching 60, so it makes sense. But I'm, you know, I've never been quite six feet. I was 5'11 and three quarters at my best, unless I put on shoes. Then I was six foot, you know, right on. So, the, but the point is, I'm not 6'5. I'm not a tall person unless I'm standing next to Height is relative. You can't have a mountain without a valley kind of thing. The nature of our way of saying somebody's athletic. Yeah, in high school, the best player in the school can't even get into a college to play the sport. Uh, or into the, into the you know, everybody wants to be a professional athlete until they realize that everybody's better than they are who wants to be a professional, and so on. You get the idea. So all the personal stuff is still comparative. And even if you were the best athlete in the world, all it would mean is you're the best one who happens to be alive in this community right now. Somebody else might be better, hence all the GOAT arguments, right? So 
all those things are inherently measured against social norms. That's the point I'm making. So what, what I don't mean by the conversation today, and wow, the introduction's taking a little longer than I thought it would, but this is the point. What I don't, and it's not complicated, so we can get through it in time. Don't panic. I know you, nobody would panic about this. I'm just saying, I do. So what I don't mean by this is just that we need each other economically or in some other way like that. We did an episode on that. This is the one I was referring to right at the very beginning of the program. And that one's, that one's called The Problem With Others Is That They Are Also People. I encourage you to listen to it. I think it's worth the conversation to talk about that as well. All of those needs that we have for each other are one thing. What I mean in the conversation today is that we become who we are. We understand life, and we set our goals, and we accomplish those goals as individuals because of our social community, especially cultural context. And, you know, it's not hard to make the argument for this uh, or for you to understand what I mean by it. Isolation, you know, setting a person completely apart from everyone else is a, a perfect demonstration of how vital community is to a human being. Isolation is depressing. It's dehumanizing beyond depressing. It deforms the human soul. And I know I'm using artistic language, if nothing else, but I mean it's accurate. It deforms the soul. It deprives the human soul, in my opinion, of any form at all over time. We are that dependent on our community, culture, or society. And if you think, oh, well, you know, all this is just a bunch of rationalization about what's going on in our lives, I don't think so. And, you know, I would start at the very beginning, the, the low tove, the it's not good uh, that God gives us in Genesis 2 when he's created man. And we know in Genesis 1, he's creating them as a pair and in order to multiply. But in Genesis 2, he gives us the explicit form of that when he says it's not good that man should be alone. Effectively meaning it's not good that man should be apart. I will make him a helper who is comparable, but that also means opposed to him. That is, fits just right, but fits opposite to him. So it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him comparable. And, now, and I realize, of course, that's, in, that's all about, and this is important to me, I've written about this, that's all about the most essential distinction uh, that comes to humanity. I'll mention it again in a moment. But it is also a recognition that in creating that one essential distinction, it was important that the man not exist, the human, not exist in isolation. Uh, in fact, Adam's response when God does this, you know, he brings all the animals or any of those. No, those are not going to be, you know, you'd just be an animal if you just ran animals all the time. Instead, creates from his rib, from his substance, uh, another person, but this time different because she's conform to this image, this opposite image that fits but opposes at the same time him. And so Adam's response is that she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In one sense, that identifies the most essential demographics in humanity, not just Adam saying, oh, look, that thing's different than I am. 
The whole point of the passage is to give this background so that people who are reading the passage can say, oh, so God is the source of why there are people like that over there in this community culture, and then there are people like me over here in this community in this culture, and so on. The same, by the way, happens to a lesser degree with other demographics. Why does he pull Abraham out and make him different? Not so Abraham can be special, but so he can be the father of a nation that blesses all the nations. Nations are named. Tribes are named. Families are named. The whole point is that we're identified. We find our existence, our identity, our form in the people of whom we are a part. Uh, So a person in isolation, look, I'll say it this way. A person in isolation is water without a container. Uh, Culture is what it takes to give form to human being. And I I mean it that strongly. Uh, I know that when we're in, uh, around other people, when we're being contained by them, we hate it. I mean, you know, we like some of it, but we hate some of it. We don't like the way people are pushing against us and telling us we have to do things or just requiring things or even even just expecting things from us or even just hoping for things from us. That's all pressure, but pressure is what keeps water in its form. And that's what I'm saying about the human soul, that isolation makes us like water if it weren't contained. It just runs out all over the place and becomes nothing at all. This is the point I'm making. So a person in isolation is water without a container. Culture gives form to human being and the form that it gives to us. Not, this doesn't make us exist. God creates the human soul. God creates the human being. I, that, this, is, this is part of the point. But the form that that water takes, the form that that soul takes, the language that we begin to speak, which changes the way you see the world. And if you've ever spoken another language, I spoke enough Russian when I was in college, took it for three years, spoke it fairly fluently. According to my professor, I never got to visit Russia while I could speak it fluently. It changed my way of thinking while I was speaking it. it It was like pretending to be another person to speak that language effectively. And I've had other people tell me that about their languages as well. Uh, the, the professor we have that takes, I'm, I'm the president of Criswell College, the professor we have that takes our students to Israel so that they can serve on both sides of the line, on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side. When they serve, because he speaks fluent Arabic and he speaks modern Hebrew also, when he speaks Arabic, he looks like a different person. It's weird, by the way. Not Arabic, him. So I'm just saying, if if you're listening to it, it's not the language. I guarantee it's him. Anyway, the point is, it's an amazing transformation. Language changes the way you think about the world. I'm not saying it makes it impossible for people who speak different languages to communicate with each other. I'm not saying that there's incommensurability between cultures. I don't buy that. I understand it, and we can have long discussions about it, and I accept more of it than most most people probably would. But, but I don't buy the whole line about incommensurability. If you don't know what that is, good for you. Stay there. You don't need to know what it is. The po- I'm, you know, I'm just kidding. Learn everything you can. But the point is, of course, you can speak across language barriers, and of course, you can do translation that's meaningful. I believe all of that. And yet, you have to do the translation to do more than just convert one word to the other word, because idioms are more than just convenient clumpings of language. They also express metaphors that are assumed in one culture and not the other, and so on. You get the idea. 
Customs are exactly the same way. All of the customs we have, whether you head bob when you meet someone or give them a big hug when you meet them, all of those kinds of changes in the behaviors that we have, are they inform us, they shape us because of the culture that we're a part of. Again, it doesn't mean you can't learn to be a part of another culture, but you can create huge insults in a culture just because you don't know what their customs are because we are formed by other cultures. Even the aspirations that we set are formed by our culture. How high can we climb in the class society if people view their society as being classed, you know, classified? Uh, the, the, you know, for instance, the castes of India and things like that, which are illegal but are still commonly recognized uh, in India as the example. So I'm not saying by that, by the way, that because our aspirations are set by our our culture or or our are contained or formed by our culture, I'm not saying by that that there's no human creativity or that individuals can't invent something or somehow go beyond the boundaries because because cultures have peripheries, they have fences, and we breach new horizons constantly both because the culture is pushing those fences and because individuals who are next to those fences are looking over the horizon to see what might come up from Jules Verne to Steve Jobs. Uh, Any direction you want to go with it. I'm not saying you can't grow within a culture, but I am saying the culture is what gives form. Just like you could have a bottle of water that, you know, expands. Okay, fine, it expands. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still contained within that plastic, within whatever it is, that's holding it. Okay, you get the idea. So here's what I want to get at, how that community contains us. And it's in two ways. Positively, the culture gives us things. It gives us resources. So on, and it gives us more than resources. I'll mention results here in just a minute too, but it gives us resources, you know, intellectual resources. I mentioned a moment ago, it gives us language, but it also gives us history and literature and ritual and all of those intellectual type resources that shape the way our mind is thinking about the world directly because we read a book and it changes our opinion about what happened, right? It also gives us physical resources, aside from intellectual resources. And yes, you could divide this into spiritual and other categories as well. I'm just giving examples. But physical resources like food, clothing, and shelter. And you say, well, I mean, that's just, you know, even animals provide food for each other and things like, yeah, but this is more than that. This is deciding we need to sit down and have a meal at a table of this kind of food cooked this way. And we don't eat horse here, but we do eat cows and, you know, things like that. Okay. So food, clothing, and shelter does more to inform us. Not, and it does inform us intellectually, but it's not like you have to sit down and say to somebody, you know, you can wear jeans, but you can't wear a kilt uh, in American society, which is not true, by the way. Obviously, people do wear kilts here on occasion, and yet they get a lot of attention when they do, right? It's part of the reason people do it here, probably, which is fine. I think that's absolutely fine. No condemnation for me whatsoever. I think it's fine. My point is, you don't have to teach people that jeans are a common thing that people wear in American culture. It's not an intellectual trait handed down by the culture. It's a practice. It's, you know, the shape that we think society would have. And and to see people who grow up in a different culture, you can sort of identify that they're growing up in a different culture partially by their clothing uh, or how they wear that clothing or whatever. 
you get the idea. So all of that with food, clothing, and shelter, the, the type of home that we're willing to live in or that we think is elegant or luxurious or that we think is comfortable enough or that's satisfying is defined by our culture. Oh, you get the idea. So physical resources in a culture also shape us, form us as individuals and the kind of the person we are. And technology does it, which obviously repeats itself in all those things that I was talking about above, food, uh, you know, agricultural technology, stuff like that. But I'm thinking more of, you know, for so think of it this way. How, how does culture, not just that we have cars makes our culture different. That's not the point. That we live in a culture that has cars makes us think differently about who we are, what we can do, and what life is about. We think differently about who can be our friend or what's central to our lives because we can drive somewhere to go to a community, to a, to a church or to a job or, you know, to a vacation. We are different people because of that than we would be if we couldn't have a car. And just think of yourself having a car where no one has cars. When you were a kid, did you ever dream about something like this? I, not dream, you know what I mean. Imagine it. Having a car where, you know, you go back 10,000 years and nobody else has a car, but I have a car. That's an advantage for about one take load of gas. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, where's the gas station? The what station? I'm sorry, what is it you want? So why do you have that giant three, you know, two-ton uh, massive boat anchor, which they don't even have a boat yet, but whatever. You get the idea. <laughs> you know, the, 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 and, oh, by the way, if you think the opposite direction, think of what that intellectual resources. Oh, man, he, he was able to get from there to there in one hour. you got to be kidding. How did that happen? And then starting to think, oh, so we could work with metal alloys in different ways. You can put them together in different ways and come up with different. And what's this plastic stuff? And where did it come from? Oh, you can get energy out of the ground by getting this whatever. All of those options would be created for that society. You, then you get start to get the idea of how important the culture is. Again, like I said, I mean, on one end, this is so rudimentary. Everybody knows this. But on the other end, we just sort of ignore it when we start thinking about how important we are as individuals and think of the society or the culture or the boundaries that we have because of our culture as nothing but a nuisance. That, that's, a, that's an empty view of life. It's, it's, it's wrongful. It's, it's thinking you want to be a puddle of water, but you don't. You need that boundary. You need that definition just to have become the person who wants to evade all of those pressures, uh, refrigeration, all that kind of stuff in technology. Okay, so you get the idea. It, culture gives us resources, but it also gives us results. Uh, in other words, uh, it, it, it produces certain things in us as outcomes of all of those resources that it gave us. So, for instance, we are nomadic or agrarian or industrial or whatever it is we are now because of all of those resources that it has given us. And surely you recognize that even though obviously we have common elements because of the people who are around us no matter what, that we are fundamentally different now than we were when we were a nomadic people. And I just mean as human beings, right? Someone who grows up, as an example, even within our society, someone who grows up in a blue-collar community sees the world differently than someone who grows up UMC. The difference between someone who, uh, you, uh, upper middle class, it's a joke that we use. Uh, we use that abbreviation, that acrostic for it around here every once in a while. UMC, we, we tease somebody who works with us about being UMC only because of uh, the tastes that this person has. And it's just a joke. But it's a joke 
uh, that often lands for the people that we're around immediately, mostly because most of us came from blue-collar backgrounds. And so, you know, growing up as, you know, in a wage laborer type of environment, I, I need my wage every week in order to be able to buy the groceries and pay the rent and so on like that. A person who lives not just hand to mouth, not quite just paycheck to paycheck, but does live on the basis of a salary, that's a different person than someone who has the capital or the means to simply manage wealth. And I don't mean that it's simple but I mean only to manage their wealth and to be able to pursue the interests that they have in mind, which will still be productive, still be good for society, or can be, and so on. Those are different ways of seeing the world. They're both valuable. They're just different ways of seeing the world. And you can tell how different they are by the animosity that one group can have for the other, by the way. So the ones who would look down their nose at the wage laborers and the wage laborers who would look, I don't know, what do you say, up their nose, at the people who don't have calluses on their hands, never earned a day's living, you know, that kind of statement. That disdain for the other group tells you how distinct those groups are from each other. Their way of seeing the world, their way of seeing each other, their way of understanding each other. Now, again, none of it says one group has to be better than the other or is better than the other. It just says we're different and we're shaped by the culture around us. Those are things that we receive from our community or our culture positively. Negatively, and I don't mean by this we dislike it, although we do often dislike these, but on the negative side, on the vacuum side, the culture requires things of us. Just like on the positive side, it gives things to us. It gives us language and resources and so on. It also takes things from us. It requires things of us. It requires a product. So the easy illustration here is one that I brought up before in the other programs, the episodes that I was talking to you about, and, and that's the economic example. So in terms of culture, you know, the, the economic case is why we have money. It doesn't have to be done with money, but we do it with money because it's uh, you can do more complex things this way. And, you know, I hear it all the time from, uh, especially from younger people, only because, uh, well, I don't only hear it from younger people, so I'm not going to limit it to that, but I will say you hear it from younger people because they haven't necessarily experienced it for long enough to realize where it ultimately goes. But the idea, I, I hate money. I just wish we could do without money. Why do we have to have money? Because wh what they mean is, I have to do all these things I don't want to do in order to get the money so that I can have the freedom to do the stuff that I do want to do, right? So I hate money, they will say, which is equivalent to saying this. I hate having to do things other people value. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't value some things that they don't give you money for. But I am making the point that we exchange money for things we want. The reason you want money and don't want to have to earn it is because you want to be able to get things from other people that they might not want to do if you didn't give them money. But the reason you don't have money is because you haven't done anything that other people want you to do that you're not willing to do if they don't give you money. Do you see the irony of the statement, I hate money? Not, 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 that's not because I love money or I want us to live for money, heaven forbid. I've chosen to give my life to ministry. I've chosen to live my life under the command, you cannot do this for money. <laughs> so that's, that's the life I've chosen to live. So I'm not saying go live for money. I'm saying understand what's happening in the culture when people ask for money from you or when you're owed money 
or when you owe someone else money. What you're saying is, wow, I have to do stuff other people want me to do, not just the stuff I want to do. That's a negative of culture, meaning it's a vacuum in the culture that's looking at your presence and saying, what are you putting into us that makes us glad to be here? Why are you making it worth our time for you to be a part of our culture? Do you get that? We don't like it automatically, but it is an inherent part of what it means to be in a culture. Not only do they have to fit in with you, you have to fit in with them. Bummer. The fact that, yeah, look, I'm not saying it's easy. I, I live in the same tension as everybody else, and I live there as an introvert. I think extroverts have a tiny advantage in this way. Not a huge advantage, but a tiny advantage in this way. At least they're not automatically uncomfortable around the people that are pushing on them. But, the, but that, that's just, that's minor. That's a side note. The fact that you're expected to do something of value to other people, that, that other people value, the fact that you're expected to do that contains you in a way that your own interests don't. And in fact, I would contend, uh, but this would be more work than I have time to verify right now, that even our own interests would dissolve over time without social value. You wouldn't care about the things you say you care about if other people weren't in the equation. Now, again, that's more than I want to prove right now, but, but I will say it's true about almost anything you can think of. I can't think of any exceptions. Uh, music expresses things. So I just want to listen to my music by myself. It expresses things, and it's you receiving expressions from others. Words communicate. They persuade. They invite. They instruct. Sports. Why are they always about spectacle? Because they are about telling a narrative to other people. Even if you're working out by yourself, eventually you want to get in front of the crowd and show it off or at least be able to be listed as the, the greatest weightlifter of all time, you know, whatever it is. I remember uh, reading ages ago an article about this that I'm about to mention. And so I looked up uh, uh, an article online just to find an example of it so that I could show you that it's not just me saying somebody somewhere wrote one time. So in Psychology Today is the article that, that I looked up just to see that people were still saying this. And even that article, I think, is five or six years old, the one that I looked up. Uh, but it's on seclusion, people who live in seclusion, people who become reclusive over time. And in, and in general, this article in particular, but I had read this before, was about how people become more reclusive as they get older. This is, that is, people who want to be reclusive become more reclusive as they get older. It, it tends to inten intensify the reclusion. But that even then, if they're going to continue to live, basically, meaning if they're going to continue to succeed at uh, maintaining their health and not declining uh, too much, and I'll talk more about that in a minute too, then even when they have withdrawn from actual social interaction, like they stop hanging around their friends and they say no often enough that their friends stop even inviting them to places and things like that, the patterns of life that they experience, and anybody who's been around a retirement center knows this happens all the time. Well, I don't want to go to that. Only the old people go to that. And then they end up acting older because they don't go to anything. They just stay in their house and so on. That common pattern of life, even then when they've chosen to withdraw from daily social interaction, this reclusive person, the, the patterns of life that keep them from becoming completely immobile or from declining completely in their health are the ones that are fixed by their social obligations, even when the social obligations don't actually happen anymore. 
so that you clean house as if a guest is coming over, pruning plants for the people who won't ever see them, preparing meals as if someone else is going to sit down and eat it with you, and so on. So anyway, you can look up that article. I've got it linked. Uh, We'll have it linked for you on the website. But it's in Psychology Today from way back when. Um, So so in, in one sense, negatively, it requires a product from us. You have to get the house ready. You have to do this thing. You have to make this widget and so on. In another way, negatively, community affects us or, or shapes us, forms us, because it requires literally conformity. Uh, persecution is an example of this. And I, I wrote an article on cultural persecution for an ethics journal that uh, a group of, well, the Ethics and Religious Liberty mm, Committee, Commission, something, uh, of the Southern Baptists of Texas put together. And in that, in that article, I wrote about this, that uh, persecution happens because societies favor conformity uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, it's the same reason, you know, turn signals and brake lights help in traffic. You, you know, it's nice to know what other people are going to do, so you want them to share your behaviors and your patterns and conformity, right? But that means that you can predict that there's going to be a negative reaction to nonconformity. Uh, if you are part of a different group, including being Christian, for instance, uh, if you're in a non-Christian society, or for being a supernaturalist, if you're in a non-supernatural society, or for not respecting science, if you're in a science-loving society, or uh, for embracing science, if you're in a traditionalist culture before the modern era, and suddenly you're embracing the idea of injecting people with, you know, whatever. So, you know, persecution happens for all those reasons because people prefer conformity to nonconformity. That's what culture does. Conformity forms us, not a complicated idea. So here's the point uh, that I want to make, and I'll run to the conclusion here uh, to make the point. There are parts of being a commu- of being in a community, of being part of a society or a culture that we appreciate automatically. We love sharing a celebration. When we've accomplished something, when a holiday arrives, when an event has, trans, you know, has passed, we like to get together with other people and observe it and recognize it and talk about it or at least watch the celebration or the observation, whatever. We love, these are the things we automatically appreciate, appreciate about being a part of a community or a culture or whatever. We love the comfort of familiarity, but that familiarity comes in conversation, in acts of service, both ways. When you get to get up and fix the breakfast for the person you care about, or when they get up and fix it for you, that familiarity goes both ways in acts of service. And think about how, de- and, and in this sense, those acts of service go beyond just somebody who happens to be living in the house with you. Even in terms of your work, think about how detrimental, and this is Another issue that I've read about in the past, and I looked up a little article from, from Harvard this time, by the way, uh, that made this point. Think of how detrimental retirement often turns out to be to a person's health. Uh, th- in, in this one study that I read about, among 5,422 individuals in the study, those who had retired were 40% more likely to have a heart attack, to have had a heart attack or a stroke than those who were still working. Uh, the increase was more pronounced during the first year after retirement, and then leveled off after that. Retirement is hard on people, and partially because it separates you from the connections, the social connections that you used to have, and there are other indications of that in that article. 
And uh, by the way, that same article goes on to say, well, here's how you forge a successful retirement. Uh, Forge new social networks, play, be creative, keep learning. Every one of those, not just the first one, forge a new social network, every one of them is social. Every one of them involves other people in some way or another. Uh, And sometimes it's just as a proxy. Uh, Some games you're playing just so you have a proxy person, sort of how pets fill the void for social need as well, right? So what that, those are the things we kind of, we know, uh, well, those things are valuable about society, about culture. What we don't always appreciate is how essential our community is to our very existence as human beings day to day. The great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The good and bad parts of the community around us have extruded us in this form. If you put it in more theological terms, just in, you know, in, in terms of our theology as believers in Christ, God created the community, and then he extruded us from that community in this form, and he instructs us how to follow him. There's no path that he gives us for following him that doesn't wind its way through this common field that's pushing on that path from either side of the culture. I'm not saying by that God needs culture in order to produce us. I am saying by that we necessarily understand and practice our obedience to God in the context of our culture. That's it. That's all I'm trying to get at today. I'm just trying to say this, to be more aware of but also more grateful for the parent who wakes you up or refuses to, the coworker who brightens your day or refuses to, the person who yields to you in traffic or refuses to, the movements of people that reflect your values or refuse to. Not, not, not because you have to agree with them or say they're all morally equivalent. I remember watching an Adam 12, I'm winding up, but I remember watching an Adam 12 episode when I was a kid. Yep, I was a kid when Adam 12 was on. And I remember this uh, clergy, this minister, being upset that somebody had stolen something from the church. And the policeman, of course, who was the wise, the sage of the show, uh, said to him, you know, we have something in common with our jobs. Without sinners, neither of us would have a job. (laughs) I just thought, well, that's that's one way to think about it. I'm grateful for. But it is true. God has put us here for a purpose, and we we should value the community that he's made us a part of because it's intrinsic to who we are. Because... And listen, and just, just get this, because you were created by God, not for yourself, but for, and I mean for, as in to serve and to love, for the people whose very existence makes you who you are. Is that so hard for us to understand? Yeah, it is. For some reason, we have a hard time hanging on to it. Is it so hard to understand just this, and I'm closing, that the purpose for which God created us is the force that shapes us. Well, the purpose and the force are other people. You think you can't live with them. In truth, you can't live without them. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.